You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Uh, well, my name is Matt Lulloyan, and I serve as one of the pastors here uh, at Liberty Church. Uh, and if we've not met before, we'd love to, to remedy that and uh, get to meet you sometime soon. Uh, it's good to be back, actually. I've been out the past couple Sundays. Uh, and last Sunday, I had the opportunity to be uh, with one of our sister churches in the Acts 29 network called One City Church uh, over in Lancaster. Uh, and as I was driving out there uh, last Sunday morning, heading out to, uh, to preach there, uh, I had a, a really encouraging realization. Uh, and that is uh, that last Sunday, uh, we, currently have, so we currently have four churches that are part of this Acts 29 network in central Pennsylvania. Uh, and last Sunday, uh, in three of them, we had Liberty Church pastors or elders preaching all at the very same time. Uh, so Pastor John was up in Williamsport uh, at City Church up there. Uh, Steve King, one of our elders, of course, was, was here uh, with you at Liberty Church, and I got to be out in, in Lancaster. Uh, and it made me just really grateful again, uh, not only to be part of these networks of churches, like the Liberty Network and the Acts 29 Network, uh, but also uh, that we find ourselves in a place as a church family that, that we're actually able to bless and serve uh, other churches that way, that we have uh, multiple people who um, are pastors and preachers and teachers that can lead and serve and bless other congregations. So uh, thanks for being a church that frees up some of your leaders to do that from time to time, uh, for being a church that gets excited about being part of these other uh, networks that we're, we get to be part of something much bigger than just what we see here on any given Sunday. Uh, today we're continuing on in our summer in the Psalms, and we're going to be in Psalm 44, uh, which is what was just sung for us, the last part of it. Uh, If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles, page 470 uh, is where you'll find today's text. And over the centuries, uh, the Psalms have been grouped into a variety of categories. So there are Psalms of praise, uh, Psalms of thanksgiving, Psalms of remembrance. There's wisdom Psalms. There's some kingship Psalms all about, you know, the king and his relationship that he has with God. Uh, And then there are Psalms of lament. Psalm 44 is one of those. It's a psalm of lament. Uh, And as we prepared this series a while back, we wanted to make sure that we included at least a couple psalms of lament over the course of the summer. Uh, That's because lament uh, is really important, but it's an oft-neglected practice among modern-day Christians, at least in our culture, at least in our society. Uh, It's hard for many of us to sit in sorrow. It's hard for many of us to cry out to God about things that are wrong with our lives or things that are wrong with the world around us. Most of us are doers, and so we like to just try to do something about it. It's hard to just sit in that and plead with God. But as we all kind of step back and consider the past year and a half or so, have we not had many more opportunities to lament as people in our society? The the disease and the death of a pandemic racial strife and tension, political vitriol. And then on top of all of those things, all the responses to those things that that are not characterized by grace and compassion, but fighting. So so many of us, probably more of us in this room, have actually had relationships impacted, have maybe lost friends, not from a virus, but from the vitriol. There's just so much to lament, so much to lament. 
And as we seek to be formed as worshipers of God and, and we seek to follow Jesus, one of the things that we need to grow in is, is lamenting. We need to grow as lamenters. We need faithful ways for us in our lives to, to not only rejoice, and hopefully we do that and have many opportunities to, but also to grieve and to plead with God and to, to really steward our sorrows and our own failures and our unmet longings. So thankfully, this book of Psalms that's been used in the spiritual formation of God's people for something like 3,000 years now contains not only Psalms of praise and thanksgiving, but Psalms of lament. Generally speaking, when we find a Psalm of lament in scripture, it's, it's structured like this. It begins with a cry to God. It's followed by a complaint about circumstances that are playing out. There's a turning point somewhere in that psalm of lament, a turning point of trust. And then most of the psalms of lament end with praise for God's deliverance and how he's brought them through. Psalm 44 has all of those components, but it actually goes in reverse order. So when we read it in a second, listen for that. It's going to begin with praise for deliverance. It's going to begin with an expression of trust in God. But then it's going to proceed to complaints and it will end, rather than begin, it will end with a cry to God. So if it's helpful, maybe you can think of it like this. If Christopher Nolan were to get a hold of a psalm of lament, I imagine that this is what it would sound like. And if you're not familiar with Christopher Nolan or his movies, he's a director who seemingly is incapable of telling a story in chronological order. So like 20 years ago or so, Memento was one of his movies, all over the place, jumbled sequence. Inception, more recently, just incapable of telling us, just tell the story, Christopher, start to end. And if he got a hold of a psalm of lament, I imagine it would sound a little like this. But far from just a, a sequence thing, this reverse order will actually help us see that, that our practice of lament need not follow a, a rigid formula. No matter where it begins, no matter where it ends, lament can be an expression of genuine faith, and actually it can even be part of strengthening our faith as we lament before the face of God. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Psalm 44. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears what deeds our, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. 
All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals. You covered us with the shadow of death. And then verse 20, this is where the choir picked up and sang for us just a few minutes ago. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, your light shines within us. So let not our doubts and let not our darkness speak to us. Lord Jesus, your light shines within us. So let our hearts always welcome your love. I pray that we would even be able to do that together now in this time. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, trace out this psalm, this lament in reverse, in three different parts. Praise for past deliverance, disorientation over present disgrace, and then a cry for future help. So praise for past deliverance, disorientation over present disgrace, and then a cry for future help. First, praise for past deliverance. And maybe you uh, were aware of this as we were reading. If all we had were these first two stanzas of Psalm 44, the first eight verses, this would not actually be a lament at all. Uh, It sounds at the beginning a lot more like a psalm of praise or, or thanksgiving for all of the ways that God has delivered his people. That first stanza is remembering and celebrating the distant past, the great deeds of God in the days of old, as it says. That God drove out the Canaanites, and planted his people, planted Israel in the land that he had promised to give them. That he afflicted the Egyptians with ten different plagues, but in the process of doing that, set his people free from their slavery in Egypt. And the psalmist is saying here, it wasn't their strength, it wasn't the strength of the people that did any of that, it was God's own hand that brought that about. Something else that's that's really encouraging in these opening verses, these great deeds of God have been passed down generationally. Now, over and over again in the Old Testament, God calls his people to do exactly that, to tell the coming generation, tell your sons, tell your children. When they ask about the meaning of festivals like Passover, or when they see a monument or some kind of memorial, and they ask you, their fathers, their parents, what does this mean? Tell them about all of the great ways that God showed up and delivered you you and your people in days gone by. And what we get to see here in Psalm 44, that actually happened. This psalmist heard about those things from his father. With all of the examples that that we have in the Old Testament of faithless leaders, faithless kings, faithless fathers who did not tell their children, who themselves worshipped false gods and went their own way, 
we have here in Psalm 44 of an, ex- an example of how it was actually supposed to work in the good design of God. And it's a reminder to us to carry that same responsibility. It's a reminder to us to, to keep telling in our day the coming generation and to invite the young people in our lives and to invite the young people in this church to see the great works of God, not only as historical accounts, not only as Sunday school stories, but really as part of their own heritage, part of their own story, the, the shoulders on which they stand in their own lives in this present day. How incredible would it be if one day all of the children of people represented in this room, you know, our children, our, our grandchildren, our nieces and nephews, our friends' kids, what if one day they would all say, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers and mothers, our aunts and uncles, our friends, they told us what God had done. May it be so. May it be so. And even more, may it be so that people in the coming generation would be able to say what the psalmist does in the second stanza. Because in the second stanza, it moves from the distant past to the recent past. And it moves from the communal to the personal. So it's not just, hey, we heard, God, what you did for them, for those people. It's now, here's what you've done for us. And you aren't just their God, but as it says in verse 4, you are my king, O God. Now it's my turn. Now it's our generation's turn to boast in you and to give thanks to you forever. So if only Psalm 44 stopped there, we'd be in a great spot would we not? Some Psalms do. Some Psalms end on that kind of note. Sometimes we're just overwhelmed with gratitude to God for what he's done. Or even when we're going through lament, when we're despairing about something, sometimes we can fight hard enough in those moments to still end with praise to God, with thanksgiving to God for who he is and what he's done. But here, Psalm 44, this is a lament in reverse. So it doesn't end with praise. It begins with praise. And here's the thing that we see in Psalm 44. Sometimes, sometimes remembering who God is and remembering all that he's done actually makes our present circumstances harder to understand and harder to bear. That's where the next two stanzas of this psalm go. So second, second, let's consider the disorientation over present disgrace. Uh, In a very real sense, the the lament here begins in verse 9. It's really not recognizable as a psalm of lament until we get to to verse 9. And the psalmist there begins grieving and mourning and complaining. The substance of it, the, the real essence of the struggle here, is that if this is the God who saves, if he's the one who saved our fathers and their fathers before them, and if You, O God, are the one who saved us even from past things that we've gone through in our own lives. You've saved us from our enemies. Then what in the world is this? Why are you not doing that now? Where are you? Why aren't you doing what you've done? Why aren't you doing what you've promised you would do? This is another psalm where we don't know the the, the instance. We don't know the specific event or events that are being referred to. Uh, It's apparently some kind of very devastating military defeat, but we don't know which one. Scholars have suggested over the years many different possibilities, but there's nothing definitive. What is definitive 
and we've actually seen this play out already in some other Psalms this summer, is that God is the one behind their circumstances. Did you hear all the repetitions of you in verses 9 through 14? God, you have rejected and disgraced us. You have made us turn back. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. You have sold your people for pennies. You have made us a taunt, a byword, a mockery, in other words, among the nations, the nations who are actually supposed to see your power and your glory at work in us and through us. And that adds a lot to the disorientation, does it not? To to the confusion, to the hard questions that we start to ask. God clearly has the ability to deliver, to bring about delight instead of disgrace, to save instead of scatter. He's done that in the past, not only for our ancestors, but for these people themselves. He has the power to do it again, so why isn't he? Why isn't he? James Boyce, uh, who pastored in Philadelphia some years ago, he once wrote, a mere accident is not puzzling. A disaster is only puzzling if God is in control, is favorable to us, but lets it happen anyway. Does that not add to the disorientation when we see that God is behind it and that he is for us, he loves us, but this is still playing out? That's why that third stanza there is basically an accusation. God, this is your fault. You aren't doing what you used to do. You aren't doing what you should do. There's a lot of hurt and a lot of pain and a lot of anger coming through these words in Psalm 44. So I want to invite you to consider this morning, where have you experienced disorientation, confusion like this in your life? Where have you felt hurt or pain or anger in the midst of that confusion? Maybe you've lost a job, financial provision for yourself, and you didn't get it back for a while. You didn't get another job for a long time. Maybe you still don't have a job right now. And you step back and you start to think, well, work is good. It's a way we get to image God. It's a way we get to provide for ourselves and for others. God could provide a job. It's a good thing. He'd probably want to provide me a job. Why isn't he? Maybe you've experienced a a really important relationship breaking down, a close friendship or a family relationship or a marriage. And you step back and you think, well, friendships and families and marriages, these these are good relationships. And God means for them to display his beauty to the world and means for them to display his glory. So why can't I make this relationship work? Why is it so broken? Maybe you've lost a a loved one. And especially if you've lost a loved one from something that wasn't immediate, from something that was prolonged. So so there was a a chance, there were some days or weeks or months where you, you prayed a lot to God to heal. And you visited with the doctors and you did everything else that you possibly could in in your control of things, to see God bring about healing for this person, but, but that person didn't heal. That person died. For me, at least in recent days, I've been experiencing this as I think about some friends of mine and some family members who keep stiff-arming God. And, and these are people who I just would so love for them to come to know the salvation that God offers them in Jesus, but they just won't. They just won't. 
And God has the ability to intervene and, and open their eyes and show his beauty and worth to them. That's the only way that I or anyone else ever experiences his salvation in the first place. And God desires that people would turn to him in faith. So why is that not happening for these people that I care so much about? Did any of that resonate with you? Can you think of times like that or hard questions you've had to ask in disorienting moments of your lives? Some of the most hopeful words in all the Bible, in all the Bible, are these two simple words, but God, but God. And often in scripture, it's this, they're this beautiful hinge moment between past disgrace, past slavery, and present deliverance, present freedom. So we were dead in our transgressions, but God made us alive with Christ. We were in darkness, but God sent the light of his son into the world. But lament, and especially lamenting in reverse, like Psalm 44, the words but God aren't hopeful at all. They aren't hopeful at all. But you, as it says there in verse 9, They're confusing. They're backwards. Instead of past disgrace becoming present deliverance, now it's past deliverance leading into present disgrace. And what makes it even more disorienting in Psalm 44 is that there's no obvious reason for that present disgrace. Verse 17, that that fourth stanza, all this has come upon us, what? Though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Throughout the history of God's people, when they experience things like military defeat or exile, it's often because of their own rebellion against God. It's often because of their own disobedience, their own idolatry. Uh, If you're doing the the chronological reading through the Bible with a number of us and the church this year, uh, we're just finishing up Isaiah right now. And when we read Isaiah or we read other prophets in the Old Testament, it's really obvious that when that northern kingdom got conquered and exiled by Assyria, when that southern kingdom got conquered and exiled by Babylon, that was the direct result of the people's idolatry. Uh, They went after and worshipped other gods. They were not faithful to follow God. They did not keep his laws and they perverted his justice toward the poor and the oppressed. There's all of these stated reasons why that was going to happen to God's people. Or for example, when this man named Achan kept some of the spoil of Jericho for himself. The Israelite army went out soon after that and they were defeated in what, in what should have been a much easier battle. And it led them to step back and take account and go, what just happened? Why did, why did we lose that much easier battle? And they searched out the sin among them and they discovered that Achan had kept some of the spoil for himself. Well, here in Psalm 44, the people have also conducted a search for sin. But what we find out is that it's come up empty. And it's not that they're claiming to be perfect. It's not that they're claiming to be sinless. But they're saying, we're free of the kinds of covenant-breaking sins that would bring about consequences like this. See, when when sin like that is involved, when it's the direct consequence of of God's people sinning, God finds a way to tell his people that, to reveal that to them by sending a prophet, by by somehow making it clear to them, hey, this is because of your sin that you're doing this. And that's what the psalmist is saying there in verses 20 and 21. If we had done something that would cause this kind of disgrace, certainly God would know, and he not only would know, he would find a way to show us. But he hasn't. He hasn't. 
So there's no real explanation for why this is happening. And that makes it all the more disorienting. It's as if the psalmist is saying, God, you, you delivered us in the past. You're not delivering us now. And why? We, don't, we can't understand why you wouldn't. When we find ourselves in a place in our lives, like the psalmist is here in Psalm 44, at some point, at some point, we stop seeking out specific answers to our why questions. We have to stop seeking out specific answers to our why questions. That's actually what Job's friends failed to do. If you remember the account of Job, they had such a rigid formulaic view of how things worked in people's lives. Righteous people are blessed. Wicked people suffer. A plus B equals C every single time. And so they did not have a category for Job, who was a righteous man, who was suffering as immensely as he was suffering. And their interactions with him throughout the course of that whole book is them continuing to try to figure out what the sin is. Like maybe we just haven't pried deep enough and looked deep enough. And they just keep pressing. They keep seeking out an answer that will fit into that rigid formula they've got. So I'm really grateful the psalmist doesn't do that here. Having sought out any kind of sin that would need repenting of and having concluded, no, we, we've not departed from your ways, God. The psalmist then lets the why questions simply go unanswered. Disorientation notwithstanding, he's still confused, but he's willing to live with that disorientation rather than force his circumstances into this simplistic formulaic view. So when we are lamenting, when you are lamenting in your life, when but God ceases to be a joyful statement of salvation for you and becomes instead a a really painful realization that God is not delivering you like he has maybe in the past, it is far better for you and I to sit in the disorientation, to sit with those unanswered why questions than to try to force an answer that will do violence to our view of God. But sitting in the disorientation isn't really what the sons of Korah do here, is it? The the lament, the psalm closes how most laments begin by pleading with God, by crying out to God. So finally, let's look at the cry for future help. Let's cry for future help. There are really two ways we could look at these closing verses of Psalm 44. One is that the sons of Korah have really bad theology, that they don't really understand God. Why are you sleeping, Lord? We might say, well, God doesn't sleep. God's not someone who sleeps. Actually, in the Bible, in Mount Carmel, Elijah the prophet made fun of the prophets of Baal because Baal wasn't answering in those moments. And Elijah's like, hey, maybe God's sleeping. Maybe Baal's sleeping. Uh, Maybe he's using the restroom. You know, he had all these mocking statements about God not being there, not showing up because he was sleeping. The real God doesn't sleep, though. False gods are the ones who sleep. Or don't reject us forever. You might say, well, God never rejects his covenant people. That's what a covenant is. It's God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And even when you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I'll uphold mine. Or why are you hiding your face? Why have you forgotten? God is not one who hides or forgets. He is ever present and all-knowing. So maybe these sons of Korah don't really know what they're talking about. Maybe they don't really know God. Maybe they don't know the way that God operates in the world. Or maybe they know really well. 
Maybe they know so well. Maybe they're so convinced that when their experiences don't align with who God has revealed himself to be, they abandon all of the pious talk. They abandon all of the doctrinal checkboxes of the things that they know are true, the things they believe, and they just start pleading. Let me ask you a question this morning. What actually takes more faith? What takes more faith? Calculated, reverent, pious talk or desperate cries for help? When a young child starts screaming, starts crying for mom or dad or another grown-up, isn't that because they actually believe mom and dad can hear them and care and can actually do something about their circumstances and would want to? Often you and I are afraid to cry out because it's really vulnerable. What if we plead with God and he doesn't answer us? Or what if he answers us with something that we don't want to hear? And so we're much more inclined, unlike those children that just cry out for mom and dad, we're much more inclined to hedge our bets and to aim small and to ask God with a kind of a calculated double mind, like one foot in and one foot out, just in case God doesn't answer. See, sometimes faith is calm and it's characterized by peace and rest because we can see that God is on his throne and that he's in charge and we can rest and be calm in that. But sometimes, friends, faith is loud and desperate. When I hear these words from the sons of Korah, I hear those kinds of words, desperate but faith-saturated words. They know that God doesn't sleep or hide or forget. They know that God doesn't intend for his beloved people to crawl on their bellies in the dust as they say they're near the end. In Genesis 3, that's actually the curse for the serpent. That's Satan's curse. That's not what we're supposed to experience as the beloved children of God on whom God's face shines. No, these are people of faith who know the one true God. And they know him and they have a real enough relationship with him that in times when lament is happening in reverse and when remembering God's past deliverance only makes their present disgrace that much more painful. They know that they, like us today, have the freedom not to just remain calm, but to cry out. This phrase has become popular in recent times, keep calm and carry on. I get it. It's helpful. Recalibrates perspective. does not require God to actually exist. does not require God to actually be there, to take anything to him. Sometimes we are calm. Sometimes we are at peace when we have faith. And sometimes faith is really loud and we're not calm and we just cry out because we can't keep calm. So friends, what might you need to lament right now? It could be in your own life, the life of a loved one. It could be something that's just playing out more broadly in the world around us. And as you take stock, maybe what you're experiencing is not as devastating as what God's people were experiencing here in Psalm 44 but it's still hard. It's still disorienting. Whenever we realize that God could bring deliverance, he could change things, but he's not in this moment. Bring your disorientation, bring your pain, bring your grieving to God. But the Psalms of lament are part of the very word of God. They are in scripture as an invitation to you and I to do exactly that. And see if you don't in the process of lamenting. I would encourage you in this. See if you don't in the process of lamenting, find your own faith solidified and even strengthened by going through lament. 
I don't say that because your circumstances will immediately or automatically or maybe ever change. I say that because crying out in desperation, when we cry out in desperation to God, it drives us even deeper into God's own heart. It drives us to the place where we don't just say that we need him. We don't just you know, have our, our doctrinal belief statement of all the things that we believe to be true about God, where we're actually forced in those moments to become dependent, to become dependent on him. And in our dependence, we find that God is still with us, that he still hears us, that he is still near to us. And the final word here of Psalm 44, it's a really big hint that that's part of the process that's playing out as this psalmist, as the sons of Korah wrote this psalm so many generations ago. That last word here is translated steadfast love, or maybe in your, in your translation, covenant love. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So here's the mysterious way that lament works. Even when we are complaining that God isn't showing up and we're saying to him, God, where are you? Are you sleeping? Complaining to him is a reminder in and of itself that he is there. And as we do that, as we, as we live out our grief and our sorrow and our longings before his face, we remember that he still loves us. That his love is steadfast. It's a covenant love. It's unbreaking. It's always and forever. Even if we're not able to end with praise for deliverance. And there will be days in your lives, friends, and many of you have experienced them already, where you just won't be able to conclude your prayers to God with praise or thanksgiving. Even on those days, lament is forming you as a person of faith. Centuries later, the Apostle Paul will go on to quote part of this psalm, Psalm 44, in Romans chapter 8. And he doesn't quote the happy part of Psalm 44. He quotes the hard part. He quotes the part about sheep being led to the slaughter. But as he is quoting that verse in Romans 8, he concludes it by saying, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God. Not death, not life, not angels or rulers or powers, not things present or things to come, not height or depth or anything else in all of creation. Nothing can separate us from that love of God. And Paul faithful Jewish man that he was. He had heard about the great deeds of God from his fathers. He knew the Psalms, but Paul had even more confidence in that steadfast love of God. Why? Why? Because Paul saw Jesus. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God. How does he finish that statement? That is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Paul saw that even though he himself personally and Christians throughout the ages are often like sheep led to the slaughter, that Jesus was the sheep. He was the lamb of God who went to his own slaughter for the life of the world. That he took the sins, the iniquities of all of the people who would come to faith in him. He took all of those iniquities, all of those sins upon himself. But not only were his iniquities and our sins laid upon him, He carried, Isaiah 53 says, our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. And on the cross, Jesus experienced the ultimate disorientation. He experienced the ultimate disgrace. He was forsaken by God the Father. 
And he was forsaken by God the Father so that you and I would never be forsaken. When does that truth actually matter? When does that truth, when do we need that truth? It's in the moments when it feels like God actually might have forsaken us. We can look to Jesus and we can see he took the the forsaking upon himself. He took the disgrace upon himself so that even in those moments when it feels like we've been forsaken, we have not been. Nothing can separate us from God's love. So your lament, friends, will not drive you far from God. Your lament will actually lead you deeper into your relationship with him. It will be a way that you stand more firmly in your union with Christ, that you experience even more communion, even more of your relationship with him. So when you find yourself grieving, mourning, full of sorrow, lament to God. Live out your laments before the face of God. Don't worry about the order it takes. It doesn't need to follow a rigid, specific formula. Just bring your lament to him. And as you do, in that place of desperation, may you find the one who carries your griefs and your sorrows. May you find the one who holds you with his steadfast love. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would give us strength to live out these words, this message that we have heard today. We confess that in our lament, we try to deal with it on our own. We have all kinds of ways to try to cope with the sorrows and griefs of this life, things that our sin causes and things that our sin doesn't cause. Forgive us for the warped ways we try to deal with it ourselves. Forgive us for thinking we have to go somewhere else and that we can't live out our laments and bring our laments before you. Guide us, form us as your worshipers, as followers of Jesus, to be people who, are, who grow in lament, in the art of lament in the faithful practice of lament. And I pray that even now as we come to this table, that would be an act of coming before you once again and seeing that you have carried our sorrows, that you carry our griefs, that our iniquity has been laid upon you. Help us now to remember and to see again, to feast again on your finished work, Jesus, that you bore our griefs in your body and in your shed blood, that you poured that out so that we might never be forsaken, that we might always, that, that love of God, that steadfast love of God might always be upon us and that nothing could separate us from it. Meet with us now by the power of your spirit as we come to your table. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.